Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. All right, welcome to today's episode of the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. I'm really thankful to be here with a dear friend of mine, a co-pastor, and one of my teachers and mentors over the last 16 years, Pastor John Farbach. John, good to see you this morning. Good to be here, Jonathan, and I'm excited about the topic we're going to discuss. Thanks for being willing to spend some time uh, preparing for the topic of evangelism and the Christian's role um, in evangelism, how Christians perform evangelism, uh, maybe some errors that we've committed along the way. Uh, why don't you take a few moments and just kind of give your background and your history, some of your education to those who are listening. Okay, I was um, brought into a family of eight children. Um, we were raised Roman Catholic. I attended uh, a parochial school for eight years and uh, had, a, had a good education there. And learned uh, a great deal about the Bible because at that time the parochial Catholic school actually did teach uh, traditional Catholicism, um, the Baltimore Catechism and, and other such things. So I learned a lot. I learned all about the Ten Commandments and I learned about uh, many aspects of the life of Christ. Um, after high school, though, um, I decided that I wanted to follow more of the path of the world, uh, moved to California immediately after high school, and became involved in the counterculture, the hippie culture, and uh, was immersed into a lot of the ideas uh, that were prevalent in the 1960s. When I moved back to Ohio, though, it, it seemed as if there was something missing in life, uh, the world of rock music and drugs and all that goes with that was not fulfilling. And I, I sensed my life was really out of order. Uh, there was guilt in my life, likely because I did understand the Ten Commandments. And I was asked to um, uh, attend a couple meetings, a couple Bible studies, and I listened and I realized that what people were talking about were things that were serious and that I needed to really take them to heart. And after about three weeks of these kinds of meetings, um, I came to understand the real meaning of knowing Christ and understanding the gospel, and I got saved. And uh, my life has changed since then dramatically. Um, I decided uh, I would go to college, and I finished a Bachelor of Arts in uh, History and Biblical Studies, and then I went on to Grace Theological Seminary and got my Master of Divinity degree. Pastored for uh, 20 years or so up in the Toledo area, and um, now work part-time here at the chapel. So I'm very thankful for those kind of opportunities the Lord has given me. One of the things that I know about you, because we're friends and you've talked about it before, is the training that you had at Labrie in Switzerland. Could you speak to what that was like and who that was with? Yes, uh, it was in 1981 that uh, my wife Julie and I had our first child, 
uh, his name was Paul Wesley, and um, he acquired spinal meningitis and passed away uh, after only two weeks. And that really caused us to want to just pause what we were doing. And then we were in the middle of seminary at the time. Uh, we decided that uh, we wanted to go to Labrie in Switzerland, if that would be possible. There were things that I wanted to think through, and, uh, and Julie did as well. So we were able to go to Switzerland in uh, 1982, and we uh, studied there. Uh, one of the good uh, friends that I met there was a fellow by the name of Larry Snyder, who was from the Lima, Ohio area, and he attended Bowling Green State University and then Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And he was the fellow that I worked with most, and I was able, though, to meet with Dr. Francis Schaefer and discuss a lot of the cultural issues, particularly in the area of worldview, that, that I was really wanting to try to think through. What is the Christian's uh, understanding of the disciplines of education, and what about our culture? Um, is there a really a cultural mandate? Is there really a dominion mandate? How do we think through these issues? So I began to um, read a number of uh, very significant works, Dr. Schaefer's works, uh, uh, The History of Philosophy by a Christian by the name of Colin Brown. And I, I really began to see things in a bigger picture, broader picture than maybe I was exposed to before. I know because we've been friends and work together for so many years that often the time that you had at Labrie is brought up in your discussions about various issues and how to take a step back and approach those issues from maybe not the, if, could I say cultural Christian perspective, but from maybe a more disciplined and philosophical perspective where you're looking at how do the, the big picture answers of life, how, do, how are Christians answering those things? versus how are secular people answering them versus other religions. And, and that has really helped me personally to broaden my horizon and thinking. And I think that's what we want to do as we discuss this topic of evangelism today. So evangelism, I think, uh, has so, there's a lot of mixed ideas about evangelism within the Christian community. Could you talk to what you've witnessed over you know, your 40 years of being a Christian in terms of what evangelism is like, what is good about it, and what is bad about it, according to the Christian way of thinking. When I uh, first heard the gospel, um, clearly, I mean, I heard aspects of it growing up, but when I first really heard the gospel, um, the culture was very different than it is today, 40 years later. Um, I think there was a consensus, a Judeo-Christian consensus. If you talked about God, most people knew you were probably talking about the God of the Bible. Uh, that would be one thing. Um, if you talked about sin, um, most people probably, whether they agreed with it or not, probably knew you were talking about biblical values that, that extend from the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Jesus. Today, that's quite different. I mean, we're 40 years removed from that. And what we are experiencing, I think, in America today is what Europe was experiencing shortly after World War II. They were probably 60 years, 70 years ahead of us. 
and basically what we're experiencing today as i understand it is we're we're experiencing culture wars that are taking place we see them manifested probably most clearly uh politically and with aspects of the culture like lgbtq and those types of issues but it's really far more foundational than that we are seeing the erosion or if you would the replacement of Judeo-Christian values by secular humanistic values. So things today are far more what we would say relative than they are uh, grounded by by absolutes. So the culture today is is um, what is called postmodern culture, and by that it is meant that it's it's no longer a rational culture. They've escaped from reason which was Francis Schaeffer's first book that he ever wrote, by the way, Escape from Reason. And people are into their experience. They're into their subjective interpretations of what is right and what is wrong. So we're dealing with a culture that has been um, brought up over the last you know, 20, 30 years with this um, belief that my view is just as good as your view objective truth is no longer really significant in the minds of the postmodern world. What is significant is subjective truth. In other words, what I believe. So here's something you might hear today. Well, that's just your opinion. And that's kind of the hallmark answer you're going to hear many times in talking with people. We want to say, well, but the Bible says this, or the Bible teaches that. Well, well, I don't believe the Bible. That's just your opinion. So this is a big change that, that we've uh, seen um, in recent years in America is, is how people are receptive or not receptive to the gospel. It seems that um, if you just follow the news, just follow, you know, you don't have to be do a deep dive into it, but if you just follow the news, it seems that the way that we understand the foundations of society are being redefined on a regular basis. Could you speak to that a little bit? And then how Christians can engage with people who want to constantly redefine words and language? Well, I I think one of the best uh, uh, writers on this topic is uh, Oz Guinness, who I was uh, very privileged to meet with in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. And in his excellent volume, uh, Impossible People, uh, he said that, that really what, what is the definer of modern culture is what he calls the four infamous S factors, S as in the letter S. And he said the first one is secularism. And that is the major philosophy, I would say the major religion, uh, of the day, because it tries to answer the same questions that religion does, but in a very different way. So we have secularism, which is humanistic and atheistic, is the primary uh, worldview of the day in which we live, and it's the worldview that is promoted by modern music, by modern entertainment, by the network newses, things of that nature. So that's the first S. The second S is secularization. In other words, the medium by which the philosophy of secularism is basically 
introduced to culture, and I just mentioned several of them, but think of the, the music, the, 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 the entertainment. Uh, things that we see today um, are almost unimaginable uh, 40 years ago. And now we're seeing more and more advertisements that promote um, the, the sexual revolution, LGBTQ, and, and they're, they're bold and they're brash to put it right in your face. Uh, we're seeing revisionist uh, history, all of these type of things. But the third S is what Osgin has called separationalism. And in other words, separating the Judeo-Christian view and biblical truth from the culture. So you constantly hear within um, the discussion, oh, separation of church and state, you're not allowed to give your opinion. And and that is a modern interpretation of how um, the early founders, they embraced many Judeo-Christian views, and there was a voice for Judeo-Christian values. So you have the three you have secularism, which is the philosophy. You have secularization, which is the medium by which secularism is put into culture. And then you have separationism, where the courts have said you can't talk religiously within you know, the, the culture or within politics or whatever. And that leads to the fourth S, which is a, what Osgin has called a new and formidable statism. In other words, political correctness. And this is what we've, we've come to in our culture today because they've taken the Judeo-Christian values out of the culture. We have, by default now, uh, entered into a, a whole politically correct view of reality. And it's producing fruits that are not very conducive to the way Christians think. And... You know, this is a major difference today. So when we're dealing with this type of a culture, we need to understand how it is we can engage the culture. Now, let me just step back a moment. Not everybody is at the philosophical level of the people that really promote the philosophy of secularism. But as it has been stated, (coughs) excuse me, Secularism washes down in the rain. The philosophies are there. They're taught in our universities. They're taught in textbooks. And people get it, usually not through the universities or textbooks. They get it in their music. They get it in their entertainment. They get it in the redefining of family. They get it through uh, their associates. So Being being a younger person, you know, 34... Um, I was finishing college in around 2007 and being exposed to some of the music and the themes in 2007, you could see that all the cool people and the movers and shakers of society were on this train to make what we would consider, what the Bible would consider biblically deviant behavior acceptable and normal. And, you know, I just remember watching some music videos and listening to some lyrics, and I'm thinking, you know what, they're putting it in here, this reference to homosexuality or the reference to transgenderism or, you know, the reference to you doing what you feel is good for you. They're putting those things in in like five-second snippets just to see how it goes. 
And and when there was no pushback on that and no outrage and the, the record sold, it became a 10 second or a 15 second or an entire verse. And now you have an entire song, you know, to the point now where you've got a, a girl who people used to look up to as maybe somebody who wouldn't be like that in Taylor Swift. But now she has fully embraced the LGBTQ agenda and has really started to use her um, image to sway people to accept that way of thinking. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really amazing how quickly this has been done. Yeah, like and, 12 or 15 years. <clears throat> yeah. Let, let, let me go back a, a few years. Um, you know, when, when you go back to, um, i got to think of his name, the British uh, singer, uh, Rod, no, not Rod Stewart. Um, Who sang with what group? Oh, I, 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 um, it slips my mind right now. But basically, he was into cross-dressing, wearing heavy makeup. Oh, David Bowie. David Bowie, yeah. yeah. David uh, Bowie. David Bowie, you know, you're looking 35 years ago. Right. Uh, was probably one of the first that was a major pop music star who started doing the crossover it was there you looked at it it wasn't so much verbal as to what he was really about but then you had michael jackson you know who's been dead now for a number of years but it was very clear michael jackson was into the whole crossover but probably the most prominent was prince and 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 if you read any of the interviews that prince had prior to his uh, his death um he was very much in favor of this whole idea of transgender and, and, and of crossover sex and bisexuality. And, and these are the people that young people today were listening to and looking up to. And they are viewed as pop culture icons, heroes, uh, people who are willing to practice what they believe inwardly. And they're viewed in a way uh, almost like um, we might have viewed heroes years ago from maybe the war or something, they're, they're viewed today uh, as more prominent and more important than we might view somebody, say, uh, who was a, a war hero or a great president. They're trend breakers. They are the ones who break the old trends and establish the new ones. And, and this is the kind of thing that we're dealing with. But when you stop and think about it, Jonathan, it's not just there. Our culture is redefining most everything. And the government today, the statism, as I mentioned, the fourth S, is one of the uh, most difficult uh, problems that we as evangelicals have is they're, they're redefining family. Who gets, who gets benefits today? And so what used to be the intact mother, father, children uh, concept of family has been turned on its head. Anything is considered family today. It could be two men, to women, a single mother, anything is family, and they're, therefore they're eligible for government assistance, and this causes great confusion in our culture. And what I find interesting is we can sit here and kind of take a bird's-eye view of the issues that our society is faced with and some of the causes of it. But I think if you went to Walmart or Bob Evans or the average place and you started talking to a what I would consider just the average American, like the, a regular person. 
who's not in tune with all this philosophy and stuff, they might not know the name of everything that we just talked about, but I think they'd be practitioners of it when push came to shove. And so how do we begin to engage those types of people with a objective truth when everything in their life, all the influences from media to so uh, like national media to social media to everything in between is telling them that they should have the best subjective experience possible. <laughs> that's, that's really the, the, the crux of the issue I think we're facing today in evangelism. And, and I think that w- one of the things that we, we need to recognize as true uh, evangelicals, what I would ha- want to even say is, we're more reformed evangelicals here at, at the Grace Brethren Chapel yeah. that we believe in the sovereignty of God. A lot of people that call themselves evangelicals today don't even promote the Bible in their church services. Um, but I think what, what we are facing today is the difficulty of even having an opportunity to sit down with people and talk to them because people want privacy. And, and because of the, the whole focus today on privacy, um, it's difficult to uh, have an inroad to share with people. And, and so we have to face that obstacle. How is it that we can um, get into a conversation uh, that is not just soliciting people or trying to use people, but, but to really help them understand, you know, that there is a truth. And, I think Francis Schaeffer nailed it best when he wrote his books. And and by the way, he was lecturing on this in Europe in the 60s. But we have to start with people to realize that uh, people are not the enemy. They're the victims in one sense of the great lie of Satan. They've inherited the Adamic sin nature that's been passed down. And what we need to really help people understand is that they are made in the image and likeness of God. And today, people have no clue who they really are. And they're trying to find uh, an identity marker somehow in discovering who they are. So young people today, for example, uh, Jonathan, I read a statistic uh, not too long ago that uh, young people who spend five hours, teenagers spend five hours a day on a cell phone. And between all devices, they spend about nine hours a day on the average. But if they spend five hours a day on cell phone and um, are working uh, with uh, some of the social media and they get more thumbs down than thumbs up, they are 70% more likely to commit suicide. Why is that? It's because their identity today is determined by social media and their the responses that, that they're getting on their posts. So uh, this is a, an area I think that we need to be aware of that in your sharing with people, we, we're trying to tell them that no, our identity is because we're made in the image and likeness of God. And I think that's a, an eye-opener for most people. And, and what's really important along with that is telling them because you're made in the image of God, you have an intrinsic value and worth because the creator of the universe made you. And I think that's where a lot of people are struggling for. How do I get value? How do I define my worth? Yeah. I mean, um, 
on the one hand, we have a culture that says you should kill a baby anytime you want to on up to, you know, the day or the hour before birth. But on the other hand, they say, well, we should let every um, person who wants to come into America just come in and we'll just take care of all their needs. Yep. Well, so how that's such a juxtaposition. How do you define worth? You have a baby, but he has no worth, but you have this person who wants to come in to the country and they have more worth than the per- people who are in the country. So I think going back to a biblical definition would help people center themselves in understanding wh- why they have worth and where it comes from. And that's a good point. And I think you're looking at both of the issues that you just mentioned there, particularly the abortion issue, is when a culture has no standard by which to judge itself, society ends up being the standard. And and that's what we're experiencing. Stop and think about this, Jonathan. Um, It was uh, the Supreme Court who made the decision in Roe versus Wade to allow uh, choice uh, regarding abortion, we've had between 55 and 60 million uh, babies aborted since 1973. Um, that's as many people that died in the entire World War II, both the Pacific War and the European theater. So this, uh, this is a very serious issue, but it's because we have abandoned the Judeo-Christian values that we have succumbed to this new secular value that says the individual, the woman, has the right. And let me, let me even go back farther than that. Abortion is part of the feminist movement, and the feminist movement do not be deceived in thinking, well, it's just about equal pay. Uh, it's not about equal pay. I'm all for equal pay. The feminist movement is really rooted in the philosophy that says we need to tear down all Judeo-Christian social constructs like differences between male, female, husband's role, woman's role, family. We need to destroy all that, and that's what they call the deconstruction of society, and we need to reconstruct a new society where feminism can define itself how it wants. So, once the feminists were entrenched, abortion was the nat- natural outcome, and, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that abortion is viewed by real feminists as, as a real victory, and that tells us where the heart of America is. The, the, the heart of America is given to brutality in, in, in a way that is almost un- incomprehensible. I remember talking with people during the decision because I was um, in my early 20s then. But I, I look at it, and I remember talking with people who were older, and they just shook their head and said, I can't believe that, that the courts would allow this. And this is where we find ourselves today. But it's almost as if the culture has become immune to it. It's not shocking anymore. America has gone from a country that was founded on a Judeo-Christian value system with uh, a root, uh, a great rootedness in the Bible to being more like the pagan nations that Paul was witnessing to as he ex- did his missionary journeys. Um, 
those pagan nations had no problem with human sacrifice. They had no problem with all kinds of grotesque, repugnant actions in the name of whatever was serving their own interests or in the interests of their gods. And so how do you feel that? How do you think Paul engaged those people? And what can we learn from Paul as we talk to people who are in a similar vein of thinking? Great, great question. Um, when, when you look at the uh, Book of Acts in particular, um, in the first part of the Book of Acts, we see Paul primarily dealing with, um, excuse me, Peter dealing with Jerusalem. When Paul becomes a convert, it is clear from the commission that the Lord Jesus Christ gave Paul that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles, and he would suffer many things for that. So Paul was going um, into the Gentile world. We know he went into what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, we know that he went into parts of Europe, what we would call Greece today, and, and, and um, he established churches. But we also know that what, what Paul was doing in many of these um, missionary journeys, going to the Jews first, to their synagogues, where he was speaking the same type of language with them. Uh, he was speaking what, what some have called God talk. Uh, he could talk about the God of the Bible, and the, and the people within the synagogues understood what he was talking about. And then he would deliver the fact that the Bible, the Old Testament at that time, uh, predicted that the Messiah would come, and then he would tell them about Jesus. But often when he went into other areas, um, and he was talking with Gentiles, and I think uh, Acts chapter 17, when he went to the city of Athens, uh, it's very clear he's talking to non-Jews. He's talking to people deeply rooted in philosophical sentiments and and. He was approaching the gospel from uh, a different nuance. He had to go back, and he had to establish the fact that the God who I'm talking about is not the God that all these statues represent. And as I understand it, there were probably close to 3,000 gods represented wow. in the pantheon uh, in the, the Rome, Greek and Roman world. And... Paul saw a sign to the unknown God, and he used that as the springboard. I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. And then Paul goes in to define the fact that the unknown God is the creator. And I think that if there's one thing that, that we need to do today is talk about the fact that we're not the product of time, chance, evolution. We're the product of the creator who made man in his own image. A, a drastic difference, a contrast. And, and, you know, some people are ardent defenders of evolution, but most people have really never heard the biblical creation narrative set forth as it is in the Bible. And then Paul went from the fact that we're creatures and God created us, Paul went in to explain the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, the fact that he is the one who is the Savior of the world. But Paul needed to establish very clearly uh, in the minds of those philosophers that uh, there is a true God, a living God, and 
that God sent his son to the world. And I think the thing that really brought the greatest um, response, not, not necessarily positively, was when Paul talked about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Mm. And, and I think today um, this is still, I think, a, a key touching point for talking with anybody. I don't care who you are. If you go to a funeral of one of your loved ones, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your own child, there is still a grappling of the heart and mind that people go through. What's beyond this? Is there anything beyond this? And I believe this is one of the great jumping off points for Christians to be able to deal with the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is verification that the message that he spoke, the apostles spoke, and that we spoke is indeed a true message. And it is a message that has changed the lives of people for over 2,000 years. I recall when I was 18, about 20 years ago, and um, going through high school and going into college, there was a lot of discussion about evolution in the culture at large. And I think that was a response to what John Whitcomb and Henry Morris did in, in reviving a biblical belief and understanding in young earth creationism in the 1950s, 60s, and that obviously grew into the 70s and 80s. And I think the secular forces realized they needed to push that down. But nowadays, I don't really hear too much discussion regarding evolution or origins from the culture uh, in, in just the following normal news. But I think that Paul's tactic of going back to the beginning and answering that question is really critical to getting somebody to stop and think through where they've been and where they might be going. Now, we've had some interesting discussions in our pastors' meetings about how do we do evangelism in the 21st century? You know, and, and we have, you know, these discussions about, is it the four spiritual laws where you're basically practicing something like the way of the master? Or is something like what Francis Schaeffer did at Labrie a more effective method where in Europe he was spending time just answering people's questions and all the while trying to as he says, take the roof off so that they would come to know that, that there was a deficiency in their life. And the deficiency had to do with the broken relationship they had with God, that separation. How do you get to that point with people today? Where do you find those places to engage with them? And what do, what do you think really of that debate of, you know, the way of the master, the four spiritual laws, and how Francis Schaeffer approached evangelism. I don't know that I want to say they're competing schools, but they're definitely presenting different objectives in their, in their training and methodology. Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting. I, I kind of talked with uh, Francis Schaeffer about uh, that particular issue when I sat down with him at Labrie, and one of the things that, that, that Francis Schaeffer, uh, in his writings and otherwise, said, he goes, look, he goes, not everybody 
thinks as the uh, the modern or postmodern thinker. He goes, there okay. are still people who are are um, holding traditional values, and uh, he goes, you might just need to shake the branch, and that apple's going to fall into your hand. And so I'm not discouraging somebody. I don't want to ever discourage somebody from sharing the gospel in whatever way they're capable of. But what we're seeing today, uh, from from my observation, is that, uh, as Francis Schaeffer said, it takes longer. People went to Labrie initially, primarily uh, Europeans who wanted to know if there were answers to life. Um, they were basically in an anti-religion environment, and they still are within most of Europe. I mean, Europe is 3% church attendance, uh, where in America today, it, it's much, much higher. I, I would probably I think say I America... St- I think we're still over 50% yeah. in church attendance. So, but, but Europe is very, very secular. So what, what Francis Schaeffer tried to do is assess, well, who, who am I talking to? First of all, okay, that's am a I good, talk, good yeah. point. Yeah, am I talking to somebody who believes in traditional values, or am I talking to a modern person today who uh, does not believe in traditional values? So that will determine a lot. Uh, I'll give you a good example of that, Jonathan. I believed in traditional values when I first heard the gospel, but the guy that I went with was finishing up a PhD at the University of Toledo in anthropology. He was anything but traditional. And he was very arrogant. And as I heard the issue of creation versus evolution, he he was very arrogant. But the man who was presenting uh, uh, the creation side, and by the way, quoted Dr. Whitcomb, Mm -hmm. um, was gracious and gentle. And as I listened to both of these, my conclusion was, well, at least... I'd be willing to learn more about this creation view, this Christian view. But the other guy had no interest whatsoever in hearing anything about creation because he was so proud because he was finishing up a Ph.D. in anthropology, which was rooted in secular thought. So when when we're dealing with various people, I think we need to, first of all, try to identify who are we dealing with. But here is the danger, I think, within our culture today. That is, don't be too quick to assume that they're thinking the same thing that we are thinking when we use the same words. So you might say to somebody, you know. Um, Do you believe in God? For Do instance? you believe in God? And, and um, They may say, sure, I yeah, do. Yeah, sure, I believe in God. But, but the question is... Um, you believe in one of the 3,000 gods like the Greeks and Romans believed in, or do you believe in the God of the Bible? And let's be clear about this. The God of the Bible is set forth in the Bible clearly and objectively as the creator, a holy one who has sovereignty over the world. And, and he has manifested his grace and his love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a big stretch to come from somebody who knows nothing about the Bible to assume that he understands what we mean by God. And I think this is one of the mistakes that 
we often make in modern evangelism, we think they're in our bubble of thought, and they probably are not. And let's go to another important word, sin. Sure, that's a great one. Sin is is clearly defined in the Bible as missing the mark. Well, what mark? The mark of God's holiness. And because that is a concept that, again, comes from the biblical view of who God is, it's very unlikely that somebody's going to understand that who is a modern person or postmodern person. Um, they don't even believe in sin. They believe that maybe that's your opinion, but, you know, I don't believe in sin, they might say. And, and so now we've got our, our work cut out. And, and here's where Schaefer was brilliant. Um, Schaefer would, he wouldn't give up on people, but he also wouldn't conclude that, well, I need to lead them to Christ in, 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 in five minutes or less. Schaefer would talk to them about, well, don't you believe in any truth? And they may say, no, I don't. I believe that truth is subjective. Well, what about if I wanted to rob you? Well, yeah, but that's 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 infringing upon my property and my rights. I thought you said you didn't believe in truth. So you believe that that's wrong. Yeah, I believe that's it. Or you could go to say, well, you know, you you think that sexual freedom is the great goal, of the sexual revolution. Um, you ought to be able to do whatever you want. Does that mean that I could sleep with your wife? Well, no. That's where Schaefer would do what he called take the roof off and expose them to the fact that you really do hold to some standards. You just don't want to admit it. But here when we get down to the nitty-gritty, now you believe in standards. And, and Schaefer would do it in a gracious way. It wasn't to show that he's a superior uh, logician and logic, but it would be done in a way that would help people understand, you know what? You're not as consistent as you think you are, and you do hold to some values. And then Francis Schaeffer would try to develop that into understanding that you really are someone made in the image of God, and it's important to recognize what that implies, that we are also guilty of offending him because we have disobeyed his laws. And then, and I think only then, does the gospel make any sense to the modern man? Because if we don't have a clear understanding of sin, there is no good news right. because there's no bad news. I mean, and that's that's the fallacy, basically, of the Joel Olstein type of preaching, which is just add Jesus to your life. Don't worry about everything else, but just add Jesus to your life. He'll help you live your best life now. And, and really, that's a, a false gospel, a gospel that's to be condemned. Because it, it doesn't confront the realities of sin. No, I'm sure he would say, yeah, I want people to stop, you know, breaking the Ten Commandments. But that's a totally different uh, perspective on sin than what you just uh, elucidated there by sharing what Francis Schaeffer said. And I think um, something you mentioned the other week really stuck out to me, and I, I'd like you to hear your thoughts on it a little bit more. You, you mentioned something about you know, it takes a long time sometimes for the modern person, or really any person, to have that seed that is planted grow into a harvest. And so you brought up the point that it took four months from the time that you first heard the gospel 
until you eventually received it with a saving faith. Elaborate on that thought. Well, for it, us a it, little it bit. does take time. Uh, so, something that, that, again, I quote Oz Guinness, and I thought it was very clever of him, but he said, uh, you know, California, Southern California in the 1950s was noted for two. Uh, two uh, modern inventions. One was the McDonald's hamburger, instant hamburger, and one was the Four Spiritual Laws by Bill Bright, the instant gospel. And he goes, both of those were relatively new concepts. So the idea that Bill Bright had was that you could lead somebody to Christ in, in relatively short time. But 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 the fact of the matter is, it usually doesn't work out that way. It usually takes a longer time it usually takes a longer time to get to, to, to really see somebody understand what the gospel really, really means. And um, it was interesting. We had a, a, an evangelism focus uh, uh, two Wednesday nights ago, and we were pushing, uh, not pushing, I guess, but uh, trying to encourage the, the, the way of the master approach. Yeah. And, 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 that particular approach uh, tries to help people understand how you do lead to someone to Christ, but they're also saying that, you, you know, you, you do it in two to five minutes. There were two adults in the, in the meeting, and um, I asked, there were seven, I believe, seven teenagers. I said, okay, let's stop a minute. I said, how many within this group came to accept Christ the first time you heard the gospel. No hands went up. I said, well, how many of you came to understand and accept Christ after the first week? No hands went up. So I said, okay. And I started with the person to my left, and we went all the way around the circle. How long did it take you? Uh, six years. Next person. Uh, six to eight years. Six years. Now, these are, these are teenagers now. Um, middle school or high school kids who have primarily grown up in the church. Correct, and 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 so within everybody there, I was the shortest. I, I was talking weeks; they were talking years, and I thought it was interesting. And 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 I didn't do that to say, "Well, see, we're 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 inconsistent here, and we're different than the way of the master." What I did is said this: I said. Because of this reality, we need to not be discouraged if we share the gospel and somebody doesn't respond to it right away. Sometimes we're planting a seed, sometimes somebody else waters, and then sometimes somebody else harvests. But it may take years before somebody comes to the, the realization that they're really a sinner and that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. It seems that Paul was the beneficiary of that in the letter to the Corinthians, when he said that Peter planted, Apollos watered, God was causing the growth, but it was he who reaped the benefit of the souls in that city. So I don't know how Peter or Apollos made it to Corinth or that message made it to Corinth before then. The scriptures are silent on that. But it certainly seems like the people who wound up being in the Corinthian church had exposure to the gospel before Paul showed up in that city, and, and Rome, Rome would be the same way. Rome would I be mean, the same way. Um, I think. I think though that what we we ought not to be discouraged. I do think that if I was to give some advice today for people in dealing with uh, the postmodern world, 
is understand that it may take longer in sharing the gospel. Um, I, I remember uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, Donald Carson, uh, who is a uh, tremendous Bible teacher at, at Trinity Seminary, um, he, he, he mentioned that uh, today when he goes to colleges, uh, he said the biblical literacy is almost non-existent. The average person doesn't know anything about God or the Bible or the real teachings of Jesus. So he said he has to start at the basics. And, 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 and if, if you stop and think this through, to do what Dr. Carson is talking about, it's not going to be two minutes. Right. You're probably talking two hours, two days, two weeks, maybe two months. And, and he says, I try to talk about the God who makes everything. He said, I, I expound on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what creation means, its significance, the foundations of everything, the beginning of right and wrong, the grounding of our responsibility before God. And he says, I try to play that out in terms of how we look at everything. He says, the second passage I go to is the God who does not, not wipe out rebels. In Genesis chapter 3, when we see the fall, the rebellion, death, and yet God who promises to bring forgiveness. And then he said, if I have time, I will talk about God's holiness, the God who legislates, the Ten Commandments, and how important it is to understand that there really are laws that affect humanity, and we are guilty of breaking those laws. And he said, I go to the New Testament, and I talk about John 1, you know, about Jesus. Who is Jesus really? You know, and he talks about the fact that Jesus really existed in eternity past. He is the creator, and yet he came to live amongst us and dwell amongst us. And that, that, that really, that word is to tabernacle. He he tabernacled his glory in a human body. Now, now, these are concepts that theologians wrestle with. They study these. Stop and think about it, though. A person who's never heard any of this probably isn't going to grasp a whole lot the first time. And, and it may take multiple times of reviewing the same things. And then Dr. Carson said, I go to Romans chapter 3, and I talk about what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. And, and I think that that's a more, um, I don't want to say intelligent in putting down simpler methods of the gospel, but today people who don't know anything, they need to understand more than what we're oftentimes willing to take the time to give them. You know, we're supporting a church planter, two church planters who are going to go to Papua New Guinea. In fact, one of them just arrived there. The other one is scheduled to leave in January. But when they came to us to talk about how they would plant a church in a people group that had never heard the gospel, what they laid out is almost exactly the same as what D.A. Carson laid out there. You start at the beginning in Genesis, and you start talking about who the God is who created everything. And then what happened uh, in Genesis chapter 3 with the sin and the results of all of that. And then how did God fix the problem? You know, obviously that's the simplistic way of looking at it, but the solution to the problem is in the Lord Jesus Christ in the re redemption that we have through him. 
I think Christians today are overwhelmed with how to make these conversations happen. And it's far easier to turn your ministry efforts inward and just focus on those people who are inside your church and do programs better than it is to engage with somebody where you could spend two to 10 hours or longer and maybe not see any results. And people wonder, is it worth it? How can we encourage Christians to say, yes, it is worth it? Well, uh, that, again, is, is a, a pastoral question that I think is really important because people can get discouraged. Yeah. And they might even um, be really put down by the people that they're trying to reach. You know, they may not want to hear anymore. So sometimes uh, we, we just need to encourage Christians that even Jesus and Paul and, and uh, whoever, Billy Graham, uh, there were many people who they preached the message to who chose not to acknowledge it. But that's not our goal is to cause people to acknowledge the gospel and believe it. That, that's what God does. What he expects us to do is be lovingly faithful in proclaiming the good news with people. And I think that we, we can't confuse the end result with the goal that God has for us. We are not the ones who win people to Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. And I think we need to lift that burden off of people so that they don't feel like they're failures because they're not seeing the fruit of the gospel. Uh, something that um, Dr. D.A. Carson said, um, it's one of the questions in, in a terrific book, and, and I would recommend this, but it's called The Supremacy of Christ in the Postmodern World. And he tells a story in that book about his father, who was a church planter, a Baptist church planter in, in Quebec, and during the 1960s, 50s and 60s. And he said at the time there were probably only between 30 and I think 60 churches, uh, Baptist churches, Bible-believing churches in Quebec, which as you well know is a very French, Canadian, Catholic, but, but very, very liberal mm -hmm. part of Canada, the most liberal part of Canada. And, and he said I would, I would see my dad up in the morning kneeling, praying, and sometimes crying because there was no seeming fruit. And, and, and he said it, it moved me because during his lifetime, average church was only 40 people. Wow. But he said, but he said when my dad got older, um, God did a great work in Quebec, and there were between five and 600 churches some of them several hundred people. And instead of viewing Dr. Carson's father as a failure, uh, the younger pastors who were pastoring these churches recognized him as the grand old man, hmm. uh, the faithful man who, who was faithful to do what God called him to do, even though he wasn't seeing much harvest. And, and we see that today. I mean, we do, particularly in the Muslim world. Um, it's very difficult to see any fruit in the Muslim world, but we do see a great deal of fruit in Africa. But regardless of where we're at, God calls us to teach the Word of God, preach it, 
uh, but he's the one who will ultimately do the harvesting. And that's where we need to take comfort in God's sovereignty. We are merely doing what God asks us to do, and he will be the one who brings salvation to fruition. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. Um, really needed in contrast to what has been presented in Christianity for a long time of, you know, it's your skill or these laws or this method or pray this prayer. No, it's really the sovereignty of God that will change somebody's heart and cause them to become a believer. Well, John, is there anything else that you want to share, thoughts on evangelism that you have for maybe our church in particular or for those who might be listening? Well, one thing, Jonathan, I would say is that today there is a large, large movement, uh, seeker-friendly churches, church growth movement, however you want to define it, that I think has in many ways hindered um, the gospel, because I think what they've they've done in many instances is they've confused uh, the person who they've invited into their midst to give them the impression that they, as an unbeliever, are worshipers, and when the Bible makes it very clear they are not worshipers, only those who have the Spirit of God can worship in spirit and in truth. And oftentimes the gospel that is presented in these contexts is a very anemic or weak gospel. Uh, they'll talk about aspects of it, but they won't talk about one of the most critical issues. It has to do with sin and repentance. And, and repentance is, is a vital part of true conversion. And, and when the Spirit of God is really working, uh, people will repent. They will turn away from the sins that... Um, they have committed, and they will recognize that they need to humble themselves before God. And the very words of, of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, are crucial. Um, when he talked about blessed are the poor in spirit. They're not talking about poverty in the sense of physical wealth. They're talking about spiritual poverty, nothing to bring, nothing. And until people come to that point of understanding that they are spiritually bankrupt before God, They'll never understand why they need Jesus Christ. And I think what many churches are doing today is they'll, they'll use Jesus as kind of a, um, a rabbit's foot. He'll help you in all your struggles. But they don't ever lead them to the real understanding of, of the gospel and repentance. And as a result, you may have many, many people who are now religious but yet they really don't understand the gospel. And that's a shame, a real shame, because those people are deceived. Um, and, and, and not and, only deceived, Jonathan, but I think, but misled. Yeah, misled, misled. Yeah. And, 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 and there's, that's a serious problem when you think about um, the call of the minister in the pulpit and I think the call for all of us in evangelism is to speak the truth, and the Bible is truth. And, and, and I thank God that um, he has been gracious to open uh, my eyes to the gospel and forgiveness, because uh, without it, we would have no hope. Well, John, thank you for your time today, and appreciate you sharing some of these thoughts on evangelism. And I pray it would be a great encouragement and blessing to those who hear. My privilege.